Thanks for pressing play. This is Follow Your Different with Christopher Lockhead. And I'm producer Jason DeFilippo, sitting in for Chris while he deals with a family emergency, but fear not. This week, Chris talks to two outstanding authors. Our next episode is the legendary venture capital leader Brad Feld. But today, Chris talks to Rob Chestnut on why integrity matters more than ever. Rob is the former chief ethics officer of Airbnb and the author of the new book, Intentional Integrity. Chris and Rob go deep on strategies for handling a crisis and how leaders have to deal with the speed required in this age of cancel culture to get positive results. They talk about what exactly a chief ethics officer is and why more companies are adding the position. And pay special attention to what Rob says about corporate NDAs and his thoughts on what the work world looks like after C-19. It is a stunning conversation. And we're sponsored by our good friends at Splunk. Visit Splunk.com slash D2E to learn how to turn data into doing. And America's ready to get back to work. NetSuite by Oracle is the world's number one cloud business system. You can see how they can transform your business at NetSuite.com slash different. And don't forget to subscribe to Lockhead on Marketing, the number one charting marketing podcast. And now, can't believe Chris is going to let me say it. Hey ho, let's go. I am looking at a world that's changing so rapidly uh, that uh, it's it's almost dizzying. Uh, and and I, I think what's on my mind is, uh, you know, how we are all coping with this incredible rate of change that we see every day, and what uh, and and what are the implications of this uh, for the coming year. And how do you think we are coping with this rate of change? You know, it's hard to say. I look at my kids and I, I'm, I'm proud of the way my kids are managing through change. Uh, so I, I see that uh, you know, every single day. I think the world is moving toward integrity, though. There's a connectedness that uh, has led all of us to think about others in ways that maybe we haven't been thinking about people in the past. Hmm. Uh, you know, the, uh, I, I think uh, I noticed it with the Me Too movement uh, and with leaders being called out for bad behavior. Uh, I, I saw it with companies moving rapidly from a, a shareholder-based approach to a stakeholder approach, thinking about others. And now with the pandemic and climate change, uh, you, you see it even more where, as a world, we're getting so connected and what, what happens in one part of the world impacts those of us in other parts of the world, that we're forced to think about others in ways that, you know, maybe in the past we didn't have to. And I think that has potential for a lot of positive. Well, I don't think anybody could have predicted that um, George Floyd protests would be happening in dozens and dozens of countries around the world. That was an extraordinary thing that we saw happen. It touched people, didn't it? It, it impacted, you know, and I think maybe we needed something like that video because I think for a lot of folks, it was too easy to dismiss claims of police brutality. Uh, but when you see that video, there is, there, there is no 
possible explanation for any rational thought on the behalf on, on the, the thought of that police officer. You know, no, there, there's no self-defense, right? And I, I think that maybe what a lot of people needed to see was something so clear, something you know so obvious that it finally forced you to to address the problem in ways that maybe in the past you didn't have to. Yeah, I mean, I think I think for um, the world, and certainly for me, it was a wake up call and um, something completely unexpected, and has driven a set of conversations that um, many of us, certainly myself, was not having. And I think that's very positive. The flip side, however, is is also interesting, which is. Uh, anybody who's alive with with very few exceptions, of course, there's some, but most of us who are alive today have never been through anything remotely like this. And there's part of me, you know, when I think dark about this, Rob, that like, hmm, this could go very badly on a lot of dimensions. And so I'm curious as to how you think about, you know, if you think about the next 48 months, what does the world start to look like? Well, I'm an optimist. Uh, I, I think that the world is going to be pushing in directions that are positive for each other, because I think there's a, a an increased recognition that we need to. You know, racial justice is is part of it. Climate change is a big part of it, and I think that uh, what we what we do need is we do need better leadership than what we've seen and better leadership and better leadership from companies. And uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic that the world is going to push for leaders to behave in ways that, uh, you know, maybe they haven't been expected to in the past. And I'm talking about leaders of governments and leaders of companies as well. Uh, But I think it's a higher standard that's now just essential if we're going to, uh, you know, deal with some of the pressing problems that we've got in the world right now. Well, and I, I sort of wanted to share this with you. Uh, you probably haven't heard what's going on at this restaurant in Santa Cruz called Alderwood. Did that story happen to make it to you? No, it didn't. Yeah. So I think this is a really fascinating thing. Uh, very recently. So this restaurant is um, certainly one of the highest end restaurants in Santa Cruz and it's done very well. And I've my wife and I with friends have been there many times and it's, it's a wonderful place. Great experience. And it's a fairly new restaurant and it had become pretty popular pretty quickly. So long story longer, um, they had a situation happen where one of their employees was off duty, having a meal sitting next to, uh, some customers having a meal. And I don't know exactly what happened, but the customers, I guess, were getting pretty rowdy drinking uh, a bunch and they had sort of been cut off. And um, there was some kind of a dust up that emerged. And before you know it, the customer was taking a swing at the employee. The customer was an older guy and the employee was a younger guy. And the younger guy kind of deked the older guy out. The customer popped him in the face and the whole thing erupted. And then what happened right afterwards is the ownership of the restaurant came out and sort of against violence and said they had um, banned the customer for life and fired the employee. Well, guess what happened? 
50% of their staff quit immediately. Their social media blew up because the video that came out showed that the customer was being belligerent. The customer was the aggressor. And either the customer or somebody with the customer said a racial slur towards the employee. And Alderwood, by not standing up for the employee, by firing this person, got absolutely decimated locally by patrons uh, on social media. And can you imagine with a global pandemic, a massive recession, and if the people working in the restaurant industry, I got to believe, need every dime they can get. And so there's just coming back to work. And yet half the people quit in support of this uh, employee. And then here's the punchline. Alderwood is shut right now and has not made a statement as to whether or not they're going to continue. So they, they could potentially be out of business. And all that happened very, very rapidly, like in a matter of days. So I'm, I'm curious, is this a harbinger of something? Is this a one-off? Is this, how does this fit into sort of what you're seeing? I think it fits right into it. You know, the, what I'm seeing is that customers want to do business with businesses that share their values. Employees want to work at places that share their values. And, you know, what we're seeing more and more is if, if there's a mismatch, customers leave. Customers will leave very quickly and move their business elsewhere if they perceive a business that isn't in line with their values. And the same thing with employees more than ever today. I mean, look what's happening at Facebook, Amazon. You know, over and over again, we're seeing employees doing, they're walking out. If they don't like the way that the business is operating, they're speaking up, they're leaving, they're protesting, they're going online. The, you know, what you describe at Alderwood, uh, I think is going on all over the world right now in, in different settings, which again means it's a lot harder to be a leader. It's hard to be a leader. You know, in the old days, to be a leader, you, you needed to focus on making money. And that's still important. But now you've got you've to lead with integrity. You've got to have, you've got to set out what your values are. And then you've got to act in accordance with those values. Because if you don't, it's going to get spread quickly through the power of the internet to all your employees, all your customers. And before you know it, you know, you're, you're in a situation like what Alderwood's at. Well, and the incredible thing about this, and, and this is something I'd also love your sort of um, sense of, I was knocked over, Rob, by the speed with which all of this happened. I forget exactly how many days, but it was days. The event takes place. It goes viral. The ownership comes out, does what it does. People revolt even further. Uh, there's media press about it, the employees leaving, and then the, the restaurant shut down and has a, you know, its future is in yeah. question and all that. And look, I might be wrong. I might be off a little bit, but all that takes place in less than a plus or minus a week. That's what it's funny. I, I talked to Adam Silver, commissioner of the NBA, when I was working on the book and we talked about what happened with Donald Sterling. You know, if you, I don't know if you remember, Donald Sterling was the remember. owner of the Los Angeles Clippers, right? Yes. And Adam Silver had just taken over as the commissioner of the NBA when word came out on a Friday night 
that you know there was audio of Donald of Donald Sterling making a number of racist remarks uh, to his then girlfriend, and Adam Silver told me he heard the he heard it for the first time on a Saturday morning. By Tuesday, he had handed down the hard punishment any commissioner of a mayor had ever handed down to an owner, and he he told me. The thing that struck him the most was how fast everything moved and how there's so much pressure as a leader to respond instantly. And you want a time, you want to get the facts, you want to do an investigation, but the world is pushing you for an immediate reaction to do, you know, to, to stand up and respond quickly. And if you respond quickly and you get it wrong, then you're going to get killed again. Yeah, we, we, we started the conversation this way. The yeah. world's moving really quickly. And that that is such a challenge for leadership. Well, and so this is something I've been really dying to talk to you about, uh, Rob, because, you know, as a former CMO, I understand the, the sort of st- strategy of, okay, we're not going to communicate to our shareholders, to our customers, to our people, to all of our stakeholders until we know what's up so that we can be factually correct and be. And so we have a good answer about what we're going to do about it, in, particularly in a time of crisis, right? Yep. What strikes me today, and uh, that makes all the strategic sense in the world. What strikes me today, to your point, is I actually have come to a place where I think you cannot do that anymore. That what you have to do in positions of leadership is an event happens and you have to communicate immediately. Even if all you say is, this is a horrible event. We are digging into it and we're going to let you know ASAP as we dig into this thing and we're going to do our best to do the right thing. Even if, if that's all you can say. In other words, this, this notion of talking when you have all the facts and therefore you can have an answer doesn't work anymore. You have to communicate in a radically transparent way, even in a situation where you may not be able to say very much of anything. That's right. You don't have the luxury of silence anymore. And you don't have the luxury of a lot of time. Perhaps what the owner of the restaurant should have done was, was talk about how horrified they were to hear of this incident involving two, you know, two groups that they care about deeply, an employee and a customer. And it's, it's troubling. And they realize the urgency. And they need to dig in, get the facts. And that's exactly what they're going to do to let people know that they take it seriously. Uh, but silence is no longer an option because silence gets filled with dirt very quickly. Well, and in this case, I, I look, I don't, it's impossible to know what they were thinking, but it, you would imagine if they're good people, let's just assume they are for a sec. And let's just mm-hmm. imagine they were good people trying to do what many of us would call the quote unquote right thing. You could imagine a scenario where in the moment, what the right thing felt like to do if you were a good person trying to do good shit was to essentially fire both parties, right? (laughs) Right. You could Mm -hmm. imagine how in a moment that might seem like the right answer. And you might have felt like, hey, leaders are decisive and so we have to do something. And of course, that one decision now may very well cost the, the ownership of the business. When in point of fact, what they could have done is done what we're talking about and say, hey, give us a few days. We're working with law enforcement. Police were called. This was a horrible event. And uh, we're going to dig into it. We're, we're very saddened this happened in our restaurant. And as soon as we know more, we're going to get back to you. 
That would be okay, right? We can do that when we don't have the answers, can't we? I think people understand that. I think people, I think people can understand that you need a little bit of time to make sure things right. Uh, but silence can be misconstrued as not caring. And that's why I think you've got you've to get out there and you've got to let people know. You've got to get an immediate statement out. You've got to let people know that you're digging in, that you're going to get facts. And then you'll get back to them with, you know, what you're going to do about it. That may get, that may get you a little bit of time, but to be clear, it, it doesn't get you a lot of time. It's a, it's a world where people want action. They want it quickly, which is what makes being a leader such a hard thing today. Now, the, the other part that I think makes this hard is leadership. See things like Alderwood leadership, see things like, you know, so many of the giant uh, corporate uh, crisis we've had and, and companies doing the wrong thing, whether it's, you know, Volkswagen with their emission scandal or some of the horrible treatment of women at certain companies in Silicon Valley and, you know, so many other examples, the Me Too movement itself, the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got to move quickly. But to your point, I think a lot of leadership is afraid because if you move the wrong way, this quote unquote cancel culture, even if you're trying to be a good person, if you move in a way that seemed right at the time, but the cancel culture gets you, you could be out on your ass and, and you're not really going to get a second chance in this environment, are you? That's right. It, you, you do see a lot of fear among leaders. And you know, that if, if that fear leads to inaction and silence, uh, that will in and of itself get you in a lot of trouble. So it's this, this culture, I think, places a real premium on leadership. First of all, leadership that, that establishes trust when there's not a crisis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the worst time to try to build trust with a team is when there's a problem. So if you've got a culture where people believe in you up front, that can get you some time in a crisis where people will trust that you really are trying to do the right thing. Uh, but, but look, leadership is, uh, I, I talk to leaders all the time now and I do hear fear because they're, you know, because they, they are under a microscope. And by the way, look, trust is down throughout the world. You know, there, there's something called the Edelman trust survey that, that, man, that, that measures people's, trust in different institutions. And the, the trust numbers are at an all-time low across the board. Trust is down in the media. Trust in government is at an all-time low. Trust in corporations is low. And, and I think that's why uh, people are so quickly jumping to, uh, to, to the attack and to cancel. Something bad happens because there's just a lack of trust in leadership altogether. So you know, something's got to be done to rebuild it proactively uh, so that the leadership can even get time to address the crisis. So I'm curious how you react to this. Um, in, in some ways, as I think about trust, particularly in companies or leaders or brands or, or, or governments, um, there's how we've treated people in the past, right? So that's that's the first, what's our track record of, of, of being trustworthy people? And in addition to that, it strikes me that 
sort of radical transparency is required. Because when there's a lack of transparency, uh, it feels like to me, and you'll tell me, that it fires off in people's minds immediately. Well, if you're not being transparent about something, you're probably being nefarious about it. And so I'd be curious how you think about sort of the way people weigh your track record of being a trustworthy company and or person, uh, in, and particularly in the context of uh, radical transparency. Well, when, when you're looking at building trust, and it, it starts at the top of the company, and I think everybody looks to the leader right away. What does the leader say? And how does the leader act? So if you're a leader, you, you can't look at a controversial situation and, and shy away from it anymore. You, you have to be willing to, to step up and take a stand. And people are watching you uh, all the time, right? Uh, and the more you can do up front to, to build the relationship of trust by being open and transparent, uh, I think the more the, you will be better served when the crisis occurs. So I think transparency is certainly an element of it. I think also being willing to do something that's against your interest. So I'll give you an example. One thing we did at, at Airbnb uh, in response to the Me Too movement, you know, a lot of companies have uh, mandatory arbitration clauses. That if an employee's got a problem, uh, the, the clause says you've got to go to arbitration. What happens in arbitration? Well, in arbitration, uh, the, the setting is confidential. So if it's confidential, no one really knows what happens. There's a settlement, and then the settlement ends up being hidden in an NDA. And by the way, that's that whole area of our mandatory arbitration followed by non-disclosure agreements has fed sexual harassment issues because someone's allowed to engage in sexual harassment. The problem gets kicked into me into arbitration. The facts get hidden. And then the individual is allowed to go on to another job and do it all over again. So one thing we did at Airbnb is, you know, we, I looked at it and said, you know, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that we need mandatory arbitration. You know, yes, it's cheaper as a company and yes, it helps keep things quiet, but, We've got to be more transparent and more open. So in order to build trust, one thing we did is we went to employees and said, you know that mandatory arbitration clause that you signed here that, that every company requires you to sign? We're waiving it. So what we're going to do from now on is if you've got a problem with us, we simply ask that you come tell us what it is and we'll try to work it out. And if we can't work it out to your satisfaction, you get to choose. If you would like, you can go to mandatory, you can go to arbitration. And if you prefer to go to a lawsuit, that's fine with us as well. And we're going to make a further promise that we are not going to require as a condition of a settlement, we are not going to require an NDA. So you ought to be able to talk about what happened openly and freely, and we shouldn't be ashamed of it. So I think just the fact that we were to take a stand in favor of transparency and do something that appeared to be against our interest enabled us to build trust that I think in the long run will serve the company well. Hmm. That's a great, great example. And I couldn't 
not to get overly political with you, Rob, but I couldn't help but thinking as you were talking, who knows what the future could have been. But it seems to me uh, Michael Bloomberg's candidacy for uh, the leadership of the Democratic Party was materially damaged when this issue came out that there were women at his company who had gone through exactly what you described. Um, and then, of course, it took some number of days, but then they released them from the NDAs. But by by that time, to your point, the damage was done. And who knows whether he had a shot at winning the uh, the nomination. But the reality was his campaign was done within a very short number of days after uh, after all that came out. Right. That was a bomb, wasn't it? I, I was watching the debate when Elizabeth Warren hit him with that. And I think if he had been prepared for it, it would have been very powerful for him to look at her and say, you know something, I think you're absolutely right. I've got nothing to be ashamed of. And I will gladly release anyone at any of my companies who signed an NDA uh, because we can't be afraid of the truth. Right. Yeah. And I think that would have been powerful and that that might have that, that might have helped his candidacy, but you, you, it felt like a bomb went off in the room when that, uh, when she said that, and that, that was the beginning of the end, I think, of, the, of his candidacy. So that's how you read it as well, because I saw it live like you did, and that's, yeah. that's how I interpreted it. It's like, oh. it, was a, it was a big hit, right? Um, she just whacked and, Mike pretty hard. He might not recover. She, he might not recover from that, but again, transparency would have been the best answer. And when we were looking at it at Airbnb, I looked around the room and said, what would we do if anybody actually violated a non-disclosure agreement? What would we do anyway? Do, do you all really think we would go running into court to try to silence somebody in that situation? The, tr the truth is we, weren't, we, would never have we would never enforce one of those things anyway. So right. the truth is, so why, why are we doing it? If we never enforce it, we're better off. You know, th this may mean at some point down the line, there'll be some, uh, somebody will do something dumb that will be against our culture, uh, bad ethically, and it'll come out and we'll get sued. But you know what? I think I'd rather, I'd rather deal with it and be able to say, we work at a company where this sort of thing can come out and where it's transparent. And we're, you know, we're, we're not proud of what happened here. We're going to move forward, but we're also not going to, we're not going to run from it either. I think that's that in the long run will gain far more respect with your employees and with the public. So let me ask you about one that is one of my personal points of real anger right now, and that's Boeing. And it's not something we've talked about very much lately, given everything else on the news. But the reality is this company, who we now know fought hard to you know, lower the bar for the uh, uh, oversight from the federal government, launched a product that killed a bunch of people and has been nefarious about it to say the least. And, and nobody goes to jail. And unless I'm, has, have they paid fines yet? I'm not sure they've had any fines yet. I, I don't think they've even had the fines yet. I think that's coming. That's inevitable, but so somebody should go to jail for that. Somebody should go to jail for what happened at Volkswagen, right? Well, yeah, nobody did. And oh, by the way, yeah. here's the other one that drives me crazy. I refer to PG&E as PG and evil. <laughs> and we saw recently the settlement for the campfire, which killed, I forget how many people, but it was double digits if my memory's right. Now, I drink a lot, so excuse me if I'm off, but people fucking died and they destroyed Paradise, California. And the settlement was $3.5 million. And when I first read it, I thought, 
I was like, oh no, it must be billion. No, it's million and nobody went to fucking jail. Now, am I the only person who looks at a Boeing or a PG&E or, or a Volkswagen and, and is absolutely furious about this? Yeah. You know what? I, I think that companies, we need, we need better from companies. And what we need is we need companies to move away from this approach a shareholder approach. Because I think in each case, it was by a culture of we've got to get the share price up and we've got to hit a number. And when when you put pressure on employees to hit a number and put all of your focus on the shareholder as king, there is a cost to other key stakeholders, right? So in the case of Boeing and in the case of PG&E, uh, those the, the 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 cost was enormous, and the cost was to your customers. So, as a company, you you can't put the share price on the wall as the the thing that matters above everything else. You've got to put the health and safety of your employees and of your customers up at the top. Now. Making money is important too. Don't get me wrong. And you know, the, the share price matters. But that's why we are seeing a very pronounced shift away from the old shareholder model. Because the old shareholder model, Chris, it, it doesn't work. It, it encourages bad behavior. Mm-hmm. It encourages do whatever it takes to make sure you hit that number. And what we need is a model that recognizes we've got customers, we've got employees, We've got shareholders and we've got the broader community and we owe something to all of them. And when we start putting things above, we start putting money above the, the safety of our customers and our employees, then they, they, you've gone off course. So here's the rub. I get all that. Hallelujah. Amen. Maybe I've lived on the West Coast long enough that all that sounds like motherhood and apple pie to me. (laughs) Um, And if I'm the CEO of a public company, never mind a private one, but let's say a, a, a consequential public company and you're the chair of the board, we can have the conversation that you just had and we can talk about specifics about what we're doing and all our stakeholders and da, 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 da. And Let's say for sake of argument, just to make it simple, let's say there's five critical stakeholders and there's five key areas we're trying to drive the company. And one of them is around financial metrics. If I get an A plus on all other four critical ones, but I get a D or an F on financial, you're going to move to fire me. And if I get an A plus on the financial metrics and we get Ds and Fs, on the other things that are measurements or focus areas or on the other quote-unquote stakeholders, most boards are not going to fire my ass because we're crushing it on the numbers. And so I hear you, but how does this work in practice, Rob? Well, I can tell you how it has operated in practice, and it's operated the way that you talk about. But I, I think what we've seen is a pronounced change just in the last couple of years. I mean, when, when an organization like the business Roundtable that's made up of the CEOs of all the top companies, when they come out and say that it can no longer be about the shareholders, it's got to be about the stakeholders, 
that's a huge, that's a sea change. So what we're seeing now is that companies are recognizing that you've got to, you've got to come up with metrics. So crushing the numbers now has to mean the numbers that you are tracking for all of your stakeholders. So in the past, the only numbers anybody ever looked at were the financial numbers. So what companies are now recognizing is we need to start tracking metrics so that we can constantly measure the health of each of our stakeholders. How are our employees doing? How are our customers doing? And the board needs to hold leaders accountable for how they're doing across the board on all the metrics, and they need to compensate them based upon how they're doing across the metrics. Now, you can't have a company that's getting an A-plus on all the metrics but the financials and a D on the financials because then there's not going to be any money to finance the company. But by the same token, you can't have a company that's getting an A on the financials and Ds on everything else either. That's got to be viewed as failure. And I think that the world is evolving to that place right now. Yeah, that that's a very interesting set of insights. And having grown up in the tech world, there were a lot of the earlier pioneers in, in generations from the 80s and uh, 90s and maybe even into the early 2000s where sort of the celebrated entrepreneurial leader was this individual sort of uh, engineering, typically man who was like a Thor-like character who maybe left Harvard or Stanford and wrote a carbodingulator and built a giant company and is now a billionaire and like dun dun dun, dun right? And, and it was sort of a very, almost a Darth Vader-y sort of uh, caricature that emerged of these folks. And it seemed like a lot of them tried to cultivate a scary Darth Vader-y, I'm smarter, bigger, and my lightsaber's going to get you kind of a, a persona. <laughs> and it, it, it strikes me in our industry that that persona, that, that stance, you can't make it with that stance anymore, can you? No. No, you can't. I, I think the next generation of leaders are perceived to be trust builders. They are perceived as, as humble leaders. Who care about uh, who care about people other than themselves? So uh, Satya Nadella at Microsoft strikes me that way. Uh, Adam Silver at the NBA strikes me that way. And there, by, there have been others in the past. Let's not, you know, I, I, I had a I describe an encounter in my book with the founder of Costco, who strikes me as that kind of leader. I, I think that what we are finding is that that the the old style of leadership that you describe is increasingly not going to work and that we are we need leaders who are uh, better equipped to handle the sorts of challenges uh, the multi-stakeholder challenges that today's companies face so um i'm curious what the f is a chief ethics officer <laughs> <laughs> well let's be clear about what it's not okay you, know, you, you 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 a chief ethics officer does not make a company ethical and a company doesn't need a chief ethics officer to be ethical what a chief ethics officer can do is it can that role can help drive integrity into the culture of the company by being the a spokesperson on the leadership team for ensuring that 
the company doesn't lose sight of its North Star, of its purpose and its mission. And to ensure that the company is thinking about all of these different shareholders, stakeholders, employees, and the like. You know, who in the company um, is responsible for ensuring that the, the, the stakeholder approach is being followed? Yeah. And, and being visible is, I think, you know, so important because employees need to know that someone is standing up for that. And speaking out about it. So, look, I, I'd love a company. Uh, look, Airbnb has five thousand employees now. It, I'd love the idea that ethics isn't owned by one person. Uh, there are five thousand chief ethics officers at Airbnb, and the CEO is a chief ethics officer. And I think that's the kind of culture you're trying to develop. But a chief ethics officer can help develop that culture. Interesting. And and is it? Do you sit in HR? Do you report to the CEO? Do you report to the what today some companies call the CHRO? Do you report to finance? Do you wh- where does the chief ethics officer typically sit? You know it varies. Um, there there is some form of a chief ethics officer now in a number of companies around the world. It in some cases it reports to the CEO, in some cases to the board, in some cases to a chief operating officer. I think what matters most to me is that they have access to the board and that they be at the leadership level to be respected so that the company, so that everyone in the company knows that uh, there is a voice at the very top of the company with access to the board uh, that could be, that can lead in this important area. Yeah. And so in that way, as it's a little bit like, um, I'm trying to remember all those cop shows now where the internal affairs or, you know, the, the group within the police department that investigates the police. Is it, are you a little, is there an element of that oh, going on? You know, there, not, not, not the point of a chief ethics officer really isn't to be the cop. Uh, it's, I, I'd say more of a cheerleader and communicator to be a voice for doing the right thing. Like, you know, what we find is that uh, integrity is contagious, but so is a lack of integrity. If you perceive that your leaders are lacking in integrity and you perceive that others in your company are not acting with integrity, then you are far less likely to act with integrity. But if you are in a company and there is a conversation about integrity on a regular basis, there's a drumbeat about it. Leaders talk about it and highlighted its importance, then that has a contagious effect on everyone's behavior. So the, uh, really, a chief ethics officer is really tasked with driving that drumbeat and creating that contagious effect through the pulpit of leadership. Fascinating. I think it's fantastic. Now, I also, while I have you, we're at this incredible time, um, Rob, where I think of it as a cocoon time. There was life before uh, January, February, uh, and there's going to be life after we come through this massive change that we're clearly living through. And I've spent a lot of time over the last couple months talking to people about, okay, what's going to be different? What megatrends were going on that C19 accelerates? 
we had uh, venture capitalist Mike Maples on not long ago, and he talked about, he called it the hand of God has come down and sort of given some companies an incredible opportunity and, and others, you know, like your former employer, just get absolutely smacked by this. And I've begun to think about industries that are going to completely go away or, or, or be significantly transformed. And one of them, of course, is I'm not sure I would want to own a, a shit ton of commercial real estate where knowledge workers go every day. And so I, I've just got to ask you, as somebody who's kind of sat in the world that you've sat in for so long, tell me about what you see about the future of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, commercial real estate is exactly an area I was telling a friend the other day. That's not an area I'd want to be in when when this is over, because I do think that I think that we are humans who who need authentic human connection. Zoom is great, but I think we all yearn for more. And I do think that we will congregate together again in workplaces in the future. But I think we're going to be less sort of uh, uh, just blindly going to those places in the future. And then I, I think that there's going to be a much greater openness to working remotely. And so I, I, I would, I would look at commercial real estate a little differently and, and think that's an industry that may need to pivot. I think companies are going to be more open to, to remote workforces, remote talent, no matter where it is. So uh, yeah, I think the world's going to be different, but I, I do think we are. It, it will not be a dramatic, complete shift. I don't think that all all offices are going to close, and that everyone is going to work from home every day. I think it's going to be more blended. And do you think? I mean, not to pin you down, but what the hell? <laughs> do do particularly with um, knowledge workers, folks who have mm-hmm. the luxury of not being in a physical location. And actually, I looked this up. If my memory's right, and you know, remember, I drink a lot, but if my memory's right, um, <laughs> there's about 7 billion and change on the, on the planet, and roughly a billion of us are considered to be knowledge workers. So that's a very big number. And so some meaningful percentage of us don't have to be in a physical location to do that knowledge work. And of course, this has been a mega trend that's been going on for a long time. But are we in a situation where compared to the levels today, do is it 25% come back to a physical location over the next 24 to 36 or 48 months? Or do you have any sense for like what percentage of people just say, hey, I'm, you know, like Twitter that says, hey, do whatever you want. And people say, been wonderful living in San Francisco. I'm moving to, um, you know, uh, Montana, see ya, and I'll show up twice a year at the offsite planning meeting. I think that it is a trend that we were seeing before the pandemic, and I think the pandemic will speed up that trend. I don't think that it will uh, completely wipe out the idea of a work a, a workplace. However, I I would say that. Uh, 25%, 30, a year after the pandemic ends, when everything settles, I think that you will see uh, the, the trend accelerate maybe 30% more than it was before the pandemic, hmm. but, but, but not completely. Because I do think, I, do think uh, I talk to people 
And I do get a sense that people really miss the authentic human connection of a workplace. I think they, and they, uh, they are uncomfortable with the blend between their home life and work, uh, that they're, that, a lot of people miss the idea of just getting away, getting out of their home and, and going to a place where work is done and where they can have that authentic human connection. So again, I, I think that we're going to see a, a, a more blended future that has more remote work than prior to the pandemic, but I don't think that it, it will go completely to all remote work. But some people have reported they like working without pants on. <laughs> Yeah, well, they they also like not commuting for an hour each way every day, right? Um, And they love being around a little bit more for their families, which I think, look, there are a lot of advantages to remote work. And I think this has opened people's eyes to that. Um, I also think this is going to ultimately uh, help people who couldn't afford a home in the most expensive areas, uh, you know, now move to more remote areas of the country and the world where where things may be more affordable. And I think that's a real good. Look, I'm no expert, but I uh, you you've probably been reading some of the same things that I have that say you know rents are coming down and 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 property prices are coming down in places like San Francisco. Uh, I have a, a, a good friend who's a, who's a realtor in Tahoe, and two good friends who are realtors here in Santa Cruz, and. They told me even before the shutdown happened, like their phones started to ring like crazy. Uh, my understanding is right now the inventory in Tahoe is almost at zero kind of record low levels because people are just saying, well, I don't fucking have to live in Palo Alto or San Francisco or wherever. And to your point, I think a lot of a lot of smaller towns and wh- whether it's Montana or um, the Dakotas or you, you name a wonderfully beautiful spot that would be a nice smaller town that a lot of people would love to live, but couldn't because it, there weren't those kinds of jobs there. Uh, everything I'm reading says the places along those lines, particularly on the West Coast, I'm not sure what maybe you know more about the East Coast, but those things are, are happening rapidly. No, they are. If you're in real estate, it's going to be fascinating to see what not only this does to commercial real estate, but how this impacts residential real estate over the next 10 years. Uh, it, 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 this may well create demand for, uh, for real estate in areas that, where demand was quite low. And back to, look, I, I think you, you'll see this even with Airbnb. You know, Airbnb may ultimately benefit from a trend like this because you know, in the past, a lot of people could only go on vacation what two or three weeks a year. Now, they may be they may find that they can work from anywhere, and they may find that working from a more desirable location um, is actually pretty appealing. They actually be able to travel two or three months out of the year and still work while they travel. So it's going to be very interesting to see how all of this impacts uh, the certainly the real estate space in particular. Well, and to go there for a second, the sort of interesting thing is if you say, hey, I can work from anywhere, then you say, hey, there's a lot of beautiful places. And then you say, hmm, maybe for part of my life, maybe when you're younger or maybe if your kids go to college and you're, or maybe even with when you have kids, you might say, I'd really love to live in, um, in Texas for two years. And then, you know, I've, I've really always thought that um, 
uh, I don't know, uh, 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 Colorado is beautiful, and so I'd love, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So in other words, Airbnb could very well facilitate me moving in a different part of the country every year or two for some period of my life. And then maybe I decide to settle down. Human beings tend to be nesters, but a whole new lifestyle could emerge here, could it not? Sure. I mean, the idea of a one-year lease as standard may as well, because people may decide, you know what? I, I like the idea of spending two months here and then going somewhere else and spending two months and then spending somewhere else two months later and being able to do that without changing jobs, being able to work the entire time is pretty powerful. So uh, I think the, the, the pandemic is accelerating something we were seeing already moving before the pandemic, but it, it does fit in with this, this mega trend of, wow, the world is moving very quickly. Change is happening fast. Well, and around here anyway, there's been an explosion in, in sprinter vans and, and those the like, right? And we had Christopher yes. Ryan on the, the legendary author podcaster not, not that long ago. And he lives his life this way. He's got a sprinter van and he moves around and he Airbnbs and he stays with friends. And, you know, and this is not a guy who's 22 years old. This is a, you know, a learned, very successful guy who I believe is in his 50s and has chosen to live this nomad like lifestyle because it's fun and he explores around. And so, yeah, I just and, you know, I've read things about Airstreams are on back order and, you know, campers mm-hmm. and all. And so it does seem like a lot of people are sort of saying, ah, fuck it. I'm just going to sell my house, buy a camper van or whatever and visit friends and or airbnb and go wherever i want to go yeah there's a couple uh, that they upon retirement instead of uh you know buying a home buying a home in florida they they basically took their money and they they live on airbnb they literally travel around the world 52 weeks out of the year moving from one Airbnb to the next, it is just as affordable because they don't have a home. They have no base. They have everything, carry all their possessions in a duffel bag and wheel it from Airbnb to Airbnb. So it doesn't matter your age. I think that it's, there's the potential to do this now at any age, any stage of life. It certainly is interesting and it looks like a lot of fun. <laughs> now, I know I don't have you forever, Rob. Uh, is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap? No, it's been it's been fun talking to you. Thank you for bringing the Alderwood thing to my attention. Uh, the f- fascinating story. I live in Santa Cruz. You and I both live in Santa Cruz, and I had no idea that this was going on. But it's another great example, I think, of the challenges of leadership, particularly today, and and how quickly customers and employees are going to uh, are going to turn if they feel as though their values aren't aligned with yours. Your company can vaporize in a matter of days. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, uh, There's going to be a real premium, I think, on a different kind of leadership and a different set of skills. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that, uh, how that all plays out. Well, Rob, it's uh, a great spending time with you. I hope we can have a uh, physically distanced walk uh, somewhere around the hood <laughs> uh, uh, sometime soon. It would be great to get together in person. Normally, of course, with you being in Santa Cruz and me being in Santa Cruz, we would have done this in person, but obviously uh, for obvious reasons we didn't, but uh, I, I can't wait to see in person. And um, I really appreciate you writing this book. Uh, it's a great piece of work and I uh, deeply appreciate your time today. 
Well, if for people, if this resonates with folks, the book's called Intentional Integrity, and uh, it's available on all the major outlets, bookstores. Uh, I, I like independent bookstores. We've got a great one here in Santa Cruz, but I uh, hope people get out and read it. And we'll make sure that there's uh, links in the show notes and all that good stuff so people know how to find you. Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. Take care, Christopher. You too. Well, that was Mr. Rob Chestnut. How amazing was that? And you have to check out Rob's new book, Intentional Integrity, How Smart Companies Can Lead an Ethical Revolution and Why That's Good for All of Us. And also don't forget to check out OneLifeFullyLived.org. For almost 10 years, they've been empowering people to go from surviving to thriving so they can help others do the same. And is it time to scale you? Why not check out our friends at Bottleneck and leverage the power of a dedicated distant digital assistant. Go to bottleneck.online and get your dedicated distant digital assistant today. And if you're looking for some great podcasts, we recommend the Cloud Wars Live podcast, where Chris is a regular contributor. Also, if you're a fan of this show, you definitely want to check out Eric Hunley Unstructured. He has real conversations with real people just like Chris, but with a little bit of a different bent. He is exploring human behavior and its consequences. A fantastic show from a great guy. And if you want to up your skills in these wackadoodle times, we recommend checking out DeVry University. They've been doing online education for the last 20 years, but they've been around for 85. So if you've got some downtime right now or you just want to upskill for the next stage of after we come out of the cocoon times, then you definitely want to go to DeVry.edu. And if you want to learn how to conquer your category, visit our friends at Atrenet. That's A-T-R-E dot net. And they will set you up with a legendary B2B website. And a little disclaimer here, today's information is provided to you solely for your informational purposes. This oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights are adequately disturbed. Warning, the creators of this oddcast may have been consuming libations. And as an insider, I can tell you, yep, that's true. And this show was produced and edited by me, Jason DeFilippo. Sarah Knox and Jamie J lend their technical execution and take care of the website for all of this goodness. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. And in the words of the great Christopher Lockhead, spread podcasts, not viruses. Black lives do matter. Keep your hands up and your chin down. Tom Waits was right. While education is expensive, nothing is more costly than stupidity. Listen to Blue Rodeo. Only buy pasture-raised, free-range eggs. Thanks, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad, and hey, Colin. This oddcast really ties the room together. Our deepest apologies to Grant Cardone. Sorry, Grant, we just ran out of time for you. Until next time, follow your different.